0: You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit CreeksideCommunity.org. This summer, uh, we're going to school together in the Hebrews 11 School of Faith. Hebrews 11 is a list of the people of faith from the Old Testament, and each one has a specific lesson in how to walk by faith to teach us. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Abraham. Genesis 12 through 25 covers 100 years of Abraham's life, and so it gives us a chance to see the trajectory of his faith, how he starts off with just a little faith, and by the end, he's called the friend of God, and he becomes the example of faith the New Testament uses more than anybody else in the Old Testament. And if you haven't been with us, we've we've seen that Abraham's journey of faith can be seen in three great tests of faith. The test of Lot, the test of Ishmael, and the test of Isaac. Each test involves Abraham's great desire for a son and an heir, which God promises to give him. God doesn't fulfill that promise all at once. Uh, He doesn't take away that desire but rather he uses that desire as a wedge to to shape Abraham. We've looked at the test of Lot, which is a test we'll all go through, the test of leaving. Leaving the things we've depended on instead of God and putting our faith in God's promises. And we've looked at the test of Ishmael, which is the test of waiting, trusting in God's perfect timing rather than trying to push the program ahead on our own. Today we're going to look at the The greatest test that Abraham faced, that is uh, the test of trusting God's unchanging character when everything around us screams that God has changed, and and he's really not the God we thought he was. And so this morning we're going to look at uh, uh, why this is Abraham's greatest test, how he passes the test, and then how to identify our Isaacs. So let's pray. And... uh, I'd like you to pray silently. Uh, the Scripture says that God uses His Word to inform us, to shape us, to change us. And so let's ask the Spirit of God to, to speak to us from His Word silently, and then I'll, then I'll pray. Lord Jesus, you have promised that where two or more are gathered in your name, you are here in our midst. And we pray that you will be our teacher, that you will speak to us, give us understanding and faith and the obedience that will change our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Abraham is 100 years old, and now unable to produce children, and his wife Sarah is 90, and uh, she's always been unable to have children. God gives them Isaac, the child of promise. And of course, little Isaac becomes the joy of his parents' life. I mean, every time they see this little guy, oh, I'm glad we waited on God. God does bless those who trust him. God uh, leaves the best for those who leave the choice with him. They're just, as far as Abraham and Sarah are concerned, they've finished with the school of faith. They've, they've seen God fulfill his promise. It's going to be sliding for home for the rest of their lives. But what they don't realize is the, be- the, the biggest test of faith still awaits them. So let's start with Genesis 22 and see what happens. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Why is this Abraham's greatest test of faith? Well, God has already taken Lot Lot and taken Ishmael, and so what's the difference if he takes Isaac? Well, the difference is is that Isaac is God's gift. Isaac is the one that God gave him, and God promised that through Isaac, all of God's promises to Abraham about giving him millions of descendants, about the nation of Israel, about the Messiah who will save the whole world, that will come, and so to lose Isaac means all of God's promises are negated. And so it sounds like God is completely changing course. And and that's the test of Isaac. It's when God seems to change. When the God we have known, we don't seem to know anymore, that God doesn't seem to be the God we've we've trusted in. The, The foundation under our feet seems to crumble. And will we trust in God's unchanging promises and unchanging nature or will we panic? That's, that's the, the, the test of, of, of Isaac. Lori and I met uh, one summer at Lake Tahoe. We were both uh, on staff for a student project there and I was immediately attracted to her. I I appreciated how she studied her Bible, how she shared her faith, how she was one of the most encouraging, uh, positive people I'd ever been around. She loved people, and it didn't hurt that she was the prettiest girl I'd ever seen. But this time, I was going to do it right. I had charged ahead on other relationships and then botched it, and God said, this is not the one. So I decided I will not let her know I'm interested in her. And I will just keep praying. And and that summer, we went on one date. That was it. She had no idea I was interested at all, even though every time our team went anywhere, I always made sure she was in my car. But we got to the end of the summer. She goes back to work in San Diego. I'm in Berkeley. And we don't have contact with each other, except that her family lives in Walnut Creek. And so I managed to figure out Anytime she'd be home, and somehow we'd go to a movie or something like that. So we get to the, our second summer there at Tahoe, and, and I figured now, now God's going to lead me, whether this is going to happen or not. And I just find I'm not getting to know her any better. It's just there's, there's some kind of a block there. And I talked to my fr- a friend of mine, and he says, well, you know, Friendship regards ri- it requires risk, and I realized I was playing it so safe and playing my cards so close to my vest, there's no reason she should let me get to know her anymore, so I had to come clean, and I, I said, you know, at my age, elderly, 28 years old, I would not be spending time with a, a, with a woman if I didn't see there was some possibility for the future. Are you willing to seek God together and find out if he might have something for us together? She said she was. And then I thought, gosh, I've got to figure out how I'm going to seek God in this. So I I thought, I thought through all the ways that God had led me in the past and all the promises I had had. And I came up with a list of here's what I would need to see to know for sure God was leading me to, to Mary Laurie. And I thought I I prayed for God would do these things, and I figured maybe in a year I'll be able to look back and see that God either did those things or didn't do those things. Well, within two weeks, every one of those prayers was was clearly answered. Plus, God had really impressed me from the Scriptures that this was His will and that for me to hold back any longer was unbelief. I needed to commit myself. I was so excited. And I, I told my friends, you know, they couldn't believe it. JB's getting married. I can't believe it. And so we, we were in Fort Collins, Colorado, where our staff training was taking place that summer. And uh, I picked the nicest restaurant, which wasn't hard to find, the nicest restaurant in Fort Collins and made reservations. We went out to dinner that night. And I had this prepared proposal ready to go. And I get into the first sentence of it and I feel this incredible feeling of dread. And fear just engulfed me. It's the same feeling I had when I was engaged one other time and it wasn't God's will. And I, and I changed the subject and poor Lori had no idea what I was talking about. I take her back to her dorm room and I go and have it out with God. What, why do you lead me up to the moment of commitment and then you abandon me and you pull the, the carpet out from under me? Let's look at Abraham and see if we can figure out what's going on here. I want you to notice the first thing we find out why God is doing this. Now, it came about, can we go back one? Sorry. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. This is a test of faith. I want you to imagine that your high school student comes home with an F. And you say, what's this about it? And your student says, I didn't know there'd be tests. You didn't know there, there's always tests. You don't learn without tests. And that's true for faith too. Faith cannot grow unless it's tested. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect Uh, help me, result, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. Our faith has to be tested in order to grow. And so real clearly, right out of the top here, we know God is testing Abraham's faith. And so when the lights go out and everything's falling apart, and this isn't the way I expected things to turn out, remind yourself what? This is a test. This is a test. A test of your faith, okay? Let's see how Abraham responds. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Now here's what, what impresses me. It doesn't say, and Abraham said, What? Why would you ask me to do that? I'm not moving until you explain that to me. Because that wouldn't be faith. There's There's no bargaining. There's no arguing. There's no procrastinating. God says, go, offer your son on a mountain. Abraham says, okay, and goes. And that's where faith comes in. It's not faith if I don't obey when God tells me. If I understand it all, it's not faith. It's only when I don't understand, but I obey. That's my faith. On the third day, and notice, they've been traveling for three days. Abram has had three days to get cold feet. Three days to think, what is God doing? On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Do you notice anything about what Abraham says to his servants? He doesn't say, I will return to you. He says, we will return to you. Abraham clearly expects that Isaac will be with him when he comes back from the sacrifice. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. And laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Apparently Isaac was nearsighted. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. What does Abraham expect to happen? He expects that God is going to provide. He doesn't know how, but he expects that God will provide the sacrifice. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the land and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. He passed the test. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said in this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. By the way, On that same mountain, 2,500 years later, God did not spare his son, but provided the sacrifice that takes away all of our sins. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So what's the test of, of, of Isaac? The test of Isaac is when God begins to act differently than the God we thought we knew. And the temptation is to panic and to say, I've been deceived, or God isn't who I thought he was, rather than to hang in there and keep trusting that God hasn't changed and God is going to fulfill his promises and his purpose. And this is one of the common tests of faith that all of us will go through. There will be times in all of our lives when it seems like God has changed. God, God is not behaving the way God should behave and we have to decide whether we're going to keep trusting or not. In fact, there's a whole book written about this particular test. It's the book of Job. At the beginning of the book of Job, we learn that Job is the most righteous man of his age. He fears God, which God points out to Satan at the beginning of the story. God says to Satan, Have you seen my servant Job? He obeys me. He trusts me. There is no one like him. And Satan says, well, of course. You've put a hedge around everything he owns. You bless everything he does, but you take away your blessing, take away your protection, and he will curse you to your face. He doesn't love you. He just loves what you do for him. And God says, okay, all that he has is in your hands. And so in that day, all of Job's work animals are stolen by bandits and, and, their shepherds are killed, all of his flocks and herds of goats and sheep along with the shepherds are burned up with fire from heaven, Um, all of his camels are confiscated by the armies of Chaldea, and his three daughters and seven sons all die while feasting because a wind from the desert knocks down their house. And so, in a single day, Job loses everything he owns and everyone he loves. Yet Job says, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not blame God, which God points out to the devil. He says, have you observed my servant, Job? There is no one like him who fears me and walks righteously. Even though you incited me against him, he still holds fast to his integrity. And the devil says, skin for skin. Everything a man has, he will give for his life. And so God says, he is in your power. Only spare his life. And Job suddenly breaks out from, in, from large, smelly, ugly boils from the top of his head to the bottoms of his feet. Even his wife says, curse God and die. There's a reason that the devil didn't take her. And, <laughs> and for the rest of the book, 37 chapters, we have a discussion between Job and his three friends and a young man named Elihu on why this all has happened to Job. And the three friends and Elihu all say essentially the same thing. God blesses the obedient. God curses the disobedient. All this has happened to you because you've sinned against God. And Job keeps saying, I don't think so. I can't think of anything I've done against God. Uh, I think you're wrong. Nah, you're being stubborn, Job. Admit your sin. Confess it to God. I don't think... I want God to explain to me why this has happened. I wish God would come and st- talk to me face to face and explain why this... Why he's treating me this way. Why has this happened? Though, though he slay me, I will trust him he's not saying I'm not going to trust God anymore he's just saying I want to understand why well in the last four chapters of the book God does appear but God does not say what we expect him to say God doesn't say well you devil and me had this wager and uh, no Job never finds out the story behind the story and God never tells him why all this happened he just says I'm God and can you do you know what I know Can you do what I can do? And Job is humbled, and he says, he says, I am just a man, and you're God. Before I heard of you with my ear, but now I see you face to face, and that's all I need. Job learned that he didn't need to know why. He just needed to know God. That's all he needed. Well, God, of course, restores everything he took from Job, and the Scripture says he blessed Job's later days far more than he blessed his former days. That's the test of Isaac. It's when God begins to behave totally different than he's ever behaved before, and our choice is, will we curse God, say, my faith is misplaced, God has deceived me, I'm done with God, or keep On trusting that God doesn't change, that God knows what he's doing, he's God. And he and and he does no wrong. When I got back to my dorm room after my botched proposal, I had it out with God. I said, I said, Lord, I don't understand you. You so obviously lead me right up to the point of you told me to propose. And then you leave me in the moment of truth, and you just leave me out there, and I'm just overwhelmed by by fear and dread and stuff like that. So I had to retrace my steps. Had I prayed about this? Yeah, you've been praying for a long time. Had God answered every prayer I prayed? Yeah, clearly. Had God told me to marry her? Yeah, He had. had. Does He promise that if you commit your way to the Lord, He will direct your steps? As I checked off every box, I realized that to doubt that God had led me to ask her to marry me would be to doubt my own salvation. It was so clear. If if I can't trust God to do all these things, I don't know God at all. So, what's wrong? And I realized what was wrong is I expected to have this feeling of peace and joy the whole time while I'm doing God's will, even though that had never happened before. Because there's lots of times I did God's will, and I was scared to death. And I remembered the story of Abraham, how God would just appear to him every few years and say, you're still in my will, I'm still going to keep my promises, just trust me. And Abraham had to go on those few appearances for years and years, trusting God. And I realized, this is the normal walk of faith. What did you expect to happen? So I got excited, and uh, I, my wife will tell you I am romantically challenged. Um, I'm still embarrassed about my proposal, because I look at how my son proposed, how my son-in-law proposed, and they did it right. I did it wrong. I did it wrong. I'll, but I just, I had to get, do this thing. So that next night, in the parking lot of the dorm, in my car, in the middle of a rainstorm, I finished the proposal, and as an intelligent, faith-filled woman, Lori said, I don't know. I've got to check with God. And that was the longest week of my life, waiting for her to check in with God, and God finally showed her to, and so we got engaged. Here's the thing that happened, though. That feeling of dread never left. In fact, that feeling of dread went for the next year of our engagement. There was never a time that I didn't feel this intense fear of getting married even though I was falling more and more in love with her and could see God's hand clearer and clearer. I was like a divided man. And I was really dumb. I didn't tell her about it. She had no idea because in my immaturity, I didn't, I didn't want to make her feel insecure. And I didn't tell any of my friends because I was the leader and I was supposed to know everything and I couldn't have any weaknesses. So I, I went through this year just me and God, white-knuckling it. And I remember the night before our wedding, Lori's up late making a dress for her mother for the next day. And I'm laying in my bed looking at the ceiling, terrorized, about the commitment I'm about to make. And even after we said, I do, that terror was still there. And it wasn't until a few weeks later that it kind of evaporated and I saw, oh, this is what it's like to be married. This is really cool. And that has gone on for 44 years. What I learned was that fear of commitment from my background was so deeply embedded in me that I needed a year of having to walk by faith and not by sight to have it burned out of me. Because since then, Lori and I have made some very big commitments, commitments of faith. We bought a house without any money. We we planted a church. We started homeschooling when nobody homeschooled. Um, We did all—and we never, we didn't even think about it. We just did it because we trusted that God was leading us. The only way faith grows is by being tested, and I think by having to face that test every single day for a year. Will you trust God or will you trust your feelings? Will you trust God or will you trust your circumstances? Will you trust God or will you trust this feeling of terror and dread? How does God lead you? It really moved my faith from my head, the 12 inches down to my heart. Does that make sense? Faith only grows by being tested. That's the only way it grows. You may be facing the the test of Lot, having to leave things that you have always depended on and trusting God completely. You may be facing the test of Ishmael having to wait, finding out that God's timetable is different than your timetable and I'm going to trust his timing. You may be facing the test of of Isaac where everything that's going on in your life seems to say that what I believed about God is a lie, that he's not who the Bible says he is, he's not the God I thought he was. I'm just going to panic. But it's only going through those tests of faith that your faith grows. And the abundant Christian life that that Christ promised is the result of the life of faith. The more you trust God, the more you experience His faithfulness. The more you experience His joy. The more you experience His power. The more you experience Him. There is no Christian life without faith, and faith has to be tested in order to grow. Does that make sense? It's interesting that God knew exactly what he was asking Abraham to do. Because 2,500 years later, God would sacrifice his son, the thing that he didn't require Abraham to do, as Jesus dies on that same mountain, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. He dies on that same mountain because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray and on him the iniquity of us all is laid. Jesus dies the death we each deserve to die. He takes the punishment for our sins. And a Christian is not a person who crosses all their T's and lives a a great life and comes to church because that person doesn't exist. A Christian is a sinner who knows they're a sinner, who knows they need forgiveness, who knows they need a Savior, and believes that Jesus is that Savior and asks Jesus, be my Savior, come into my life and make me the person you want me to be. Let's pray. Father, I pray for all of us as your children. You say the righteous shall live by faith. And I pray for each of us that you will grow our faith and give us the strength to walk through the trials that our faith needs. In Jesus' name, amen.